At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A warm and friendly hello, welcome to Lovey Las Vegas. For just a guest with myself, Greg Eves and now part of the VEASAN family of podcasts, and got a tremendous podcast for you. It's in the second segment, Rocco Miller. He is better known as a bracketeer, and he just does great work when it comes to the world of college basketball. He does so much of the scheduling that makes all the rambunctious non-conference slates and all the non-conference games that we love possible a man that is going to be out there in New Orleans for the final four and a guy that wound up witnessing all that we wound up getting out there at the Chase Center this weekend with Duke being able to make the final four we're going to be talking with him about the final four matchups that we are going to be getting in the second segment and also going to be talking about the coaching carousel that we've been seeing as well we're going to be talking quite a bit more in the next few days and just in the coming months in general about what we're going to be getting next season in college basketball we've already seen six coaching changes out there in the SEC as I'm doing this right Right now, Shaheen Holloway is finishing up a deal to become the new head coach over there at Seton Hall. So it's never too early to take a look at what your favorite team might be doing for this next season. Just what is driving all these coaching moves as well. So we're going to have a great chat there. And then in the final segment, we do have a pair of games that are going to be coming up on this College Basketball Monday out there in the College Basketball Classic. I'll give you my side total and analysis on both of those games as we hit some bank shots. Also going to be taking a look at a few guys that wound up entering into the transfer portal as well because the transfer portal is now very hot and heavy already over 800 players in there so I'm going to get you caught up on some of the notable guys that wound up entering because well if I wound up rattling off all 800 names we will be here for a very very long time so we're just going to give you the highlights on this one and we'll be diving more into these guys that have entered into the transfer portal once the final four and the national title have been decided as well so have no fear there we're going to be doing this podcast all 365 days this year if it be a leap year we'd be doing it 366 days and if you ever have a question, comment, segment, idea, what have you for this podcast. you got one or two ways we offer those in. First one is my Twitter timeline at GUnit underscore 81. Keep in mind letter CM. It does not matter. So as per usual, please send these into the timeline. And the other way is find an Apple Podcast review. If you rate this podcast five stars, it is very much appreciated. From there, you're able to find whatever you'd like to hear on this podcast. Five that five star review. I know that many of you guys have been asking about the final four and already have my Wines handicap for both of those games on the spreadsheet that you always find on vsin.com along on my Twitter feed at gunit underscore d1. I'll be talking about these games all throughout the week. I'll do the official breakdown when we wind up getting those games on Saturday, but have no fear. We'll be talking about these games pretty much every single day. It's not going to be necessarily as traditional of a breakdown, but we'll be having some guests. I'll be lending my thoughts. Guests are going to be lending their thoughts. We're going to be doing that today with Rocco Miller, so we've got you guys covered with regards to that all throughout the week. So have 
have no fear there. I'll probably dive into a couple player props once we wind up getting a little bit closer into it as well. I personally do not wind up betting player props, but I know that some of you guys like to dive into that market, so always happy to oblige and give you guys anything that you're looking for a little bit of insight on. So have no fear there. We've got you covered all throughout the week on this podcast with that regard, and we got you covered as to everything that we wound up seeing in college basketball on Sunday. So let's take a look back at both games and how we wound up getting the final four that we wound up getting. A games from yesterday is Greg buzzing about. Here is the Rowdy Recap. Always liked it on trends on this podcast as well, and here's a trend for you. We've had one over since the beginning of the Sweet 16. That was the Texas Tech versus Duke game. So in our last 12 NCAA tournament games, one over. Both games wind up going under and quite comfortably under on Sunday. I mentioned it with St. Peter's. The run is over. I think that this is the most appropriate time ever to be able to utilize this phrase. Don't be sad that it's done. Be happy that it happened for St. Peter's. 69-49. to UNC did what Purdue could not. They had a clear size advantage and they utilized it. Armando Baycott. How about 20 points, 22 rebounds, and 2 blocks? He completely took over this game. He was tremendous. What else was tremendous for North Carolina? 19 points, 8 rebounds out of Brady Manick. St. Peter's. They were just outclassed in this game. You give all the credit in the world to Shaheem Holloway. He deserves the job that he's getting at Seton Hall. Just an incredible run, in my opinion. The greatest Cinderella run ever. I, I know that many people compare the VCU run, the George Mason run, Loyola Chicago. Loyola Chicago probably wouldn't have been a not-large. George Mason and VCU actually were. And Loyola Chicago earlier in the year went on the road and they knocked off a 25 team in Florida. Meanwhile, St. Peter's lost on their home floor by double digits to St. Francis of Brooklyn earlier in the season. If they don't win the Metro Atlantic Tournament, they probably wind up going to the Basketball Classic or the CBI if they wind up playing any postseason basketball at all. Just a case of which St. Peter's they couldn't make anything on this tape. 8 of 60 from the floor. North Carolina has been playing significantly better defense recently. If you take a look at games that have ended in regulation, they've allowed now 72 points or fewer, and I believe now 6 out of their last 8 games. So that excludes the overtime session that we wound up having against Syracuse. So they've been able to do a very solid job there. Doug Edert and company, they just couldn't wind up getting it going, though Edert, he still looks like Michael Sarah with a mustache, and that is something that the nation is all the better for seeing. And then you would take a look at what we wound up getting in the Miami versus Kansas game, and Kansas just completely jump-trucked Miami in the second half. Miami actually led at the half by a count of 35-29, to 29, and then it just became all Kansas. Remy Martin did not wind up advancing his point total upward for like the eighth straight game, but still came in off the bench. 9.6 rebounds, 2 assists, very solid in a relief role in this game for Kansas. They do wind up going just 5-14 from 3-point range, and 13-26 at the charity stripe, not great, but Kansas does wind up doing a very solid job with their defense. They have 68 points or fewer allowed in seven out of their last eight games. For Miami, Cam Agussi had 18 points, Isaiah Wong at 15, and the rest of the team, they wound up combining for 17. Three of 21 from three-point range. They couldn't throw it in the ocean. Kansas, they did a good job against a Miami team that was in the top 10 in all of college basketball in terms of seals force on a per-possession basis. Miami could only wind up getting seven in this game. Jalen Wilson, 11 rebounds in this game. David McCormick, 15 points. He was an unstoppable force down low. And O'Shea Ogbaji, 18 points, four assists, four steals. He took over this game. Kansas, the lone one seed that is making the NCAA tournament. And our final four is set. Can't get much more blue blood than this. North Carolina and Duke are going to be meeting up for their first ever NCAA tournament 
game, and it's going to be in Coach K's final season, and it's going to be in the Final Four. That's going to be rambunctious. Kansas versus Villanova. Now, Villanova's going to be without Justin Moore in that game, but that's going to be tremendous as well, and I mentioned it, all the unders that we've been getting, and up until what we wound up seeing on Sunday, you did not wind up having a favorite of more than five points being able to cover a game since Michigan State wound up losing to Duke in that round of 32 game, in which Duke was legitimately trailing with about three minutes left in the game, so you did wind up seeing a pair of north uh, five-point favorites being able to cover in this one. I can tell you right now, probably not going to be seeing that big of lines in the final four. And we're going to be breaking down those games decks with Rocco Miller. He does a great job as a bracketeer. And we're also going to be taking a look at a lot of the coaching moves that we're going to be seeing this offseason as well. That is up next right here on Coast Coast Hoops with myself, Greg Eves Peterson, now part of the VEASAN Family Podcast. And now part of the Beeson Family Podcast, and it is great to be joined by our guest as Rocco Miller does absolutely terrific work in the sphere of college basketball. He's a college hoops bracketologist and analyst over there at bracketeer.org. He also has a lot to do with regards to scheduling, and we see a lot throughout the season. A man that keeps track of all these different non-conference schedules. So when you wind up taking a look at resumes, what it's all said and done as to how these teams want to fare against one another during the regular season, Rocco does a great job of keeping that straight for all of us college basketball fans. And trust me, folks like myself, very appreciative of it. Rocco does a lot of great things for the game of college basketball, and you're able to follow him on Twitter at RoccoMiller8. So just his first, his last name, and then the number eight. And Rocco, it is great to have you aboard. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction there, Greg. It's always great to be on the program with you. It's a nostalgic time of year as we are now just down to four teams left out of 359, not counting the smaller tournaments. And so it's a time to look back, reflect, but also a, a time to look forward as we have several coaching moves that have already transpired a lot faster than most years, I think due to the transfer portal. And then we also, of course, have scheduling news and I'll be down in New Orleans this week to catch up with coaches as you'll start to see a lot of assistant coaches start to shuffle as well as these new coaches build their new staffs. You know, some of them are taking bigger jobs. Other of them will fill mid-major jobs. So it's a lot of excitement. There's going to be continual news each day. So things aren't drying up anytime soon. No, not at all. Like, for instance, you wound up seeing New Mexico State. They wound up making a hire on Sunday. Greg Hare is going to be replacing Chris Jans, who he wound up going over to the SEC, who has six new coaches. That is just absolutely insane because I mean, when you take a look at what we wound up seeing just two off seasons ago now, the pandemic wound up having a lot to play with that. You had one power job in which was filled <laughs> by a full-time head coach in Steve Forbes, and we got six now just out there in the SEC. What do you think has caused this? Because I do think that part of it is the trickle-down effect of COVID-19, that 2020 yeah. offseason, lots of programs, they just wound up saying the course just due to uncertainty unable to get guys just into the city in general to sit down and meet with them in general because at that time everything was done through Zoom but this feels like just a very extreme with regards to everything that we see with regards to the coaching carousel. Well, I think the simple answer is money. COVID-19, of course, caused a lot of that where a lot of the coaches that are let go, especially in this cycle, the last cycle, there's a buyout associated with that. And where is that money going to come from to afford the buyout? A lot of schools that I'm familiar with in the power leagues, they get that money from donors their largest boosters, et cetera. You know, of course, during COVID, that had a cripple effect across those revenue sources as well. And so I think everything was geared up for, you know, a full fair season as well, just from a job evaluation standpoint. You know, it also probably felt a little bit emotionally harsh on a coach if perhaps they 
underperformed during last year where basically they played the whole year without fans. They had to do a tournament in a bubble just to make it work. Everybody went through a lot just to be able to play those games. You know, a league like the Ivy League didn't even play a season. Patriot League didn't even play a non-conference season. So when you take that all into account, it was A, unfair, and B, very difficult to come up with the funds necessary to make and justify a buyout for some of these large contracts that are out there. And so I think a lot of these departments, you look at Kansas State, I think it's a perfect example, a very unspoken thing publicly, but behind the scenes, I believe Bruce Weber knew it was make or break to get to the tournament. They do basically the whole, you know, let him resign publicly, but that was, I, I think, agreed to before the year started. So there was some situations like that out there. He's probably the easiest example to explain. But yeah, I think that hopefully answers your question in terms of why it went down the way it did. Yep, it certainly is fascinating to take a look at that because we certainly have been seeing a lot of shuffling this offseason, and I do think that a lot of it has to do with the money, but how much of it do you think is sort of a keeping up with the Joneses as well? Because we've seen it out there in the SEC because a lot of these schools have had a lot of success on the gridiron that a lot of these schools are now diving into basketball, Alabama, for instance. Now, the basketball program is never quite going to be what Nick Saban has built with regards to football, but Nate Oates has done a great job with that program. It seems like Alabama sticking more resources there. Kentucky is just Kentucky. You know that they're always going to be focused on basketball, but you would take a look at Arkansas, what Eric Musselman has been able to do there. He's really been able to turn that into a little bit more of a basketball school list goes on and on. And I do feel like there is a little bit of a trickle down effect in that you want some of these schools that maybe are very, very strong with regards to the football side of things to be able to improve on basketball, especially when it comes to all the conference alignment that we're seeing with the Big 12 being completely redone this offseason and so many other conferences as well. You're spot on. And with the SEC specifically, you know, there's so many great coaches at the top. You mentioned a couple with Oates and and Moss, yeah, of course, have Calipari. And I think one of the biggest examples for your run-of-the-mill SEC school, maybe not with the best tradition, they look at Auburn and what they were able to achieve with Bruce Pearl. The culture has completely changed there. The tickets are very difficult to get for students at Auburn. The environment there is insane. Talk to people down there quite often, and a lot of coaches say that that's actually the toughest place to play on the road, which before Bruce was hired, that would have been unthinkable. You look at what Moss has done at Arkansas to revive that program, two straight elite eights. They broke their attendance record two different times this year. I think that starts to put pressure on the ADs at places like Missouri, like Mississippi State, especially Florida. You know, Mike White left on his own. You kind of pretend that's what happened, but we all know behind the scenes, like that was a mutual separation where he just parachuted over to Georgia. And so I think, you know, for Georgia, that's a step up to get an established SEC coach that has coached in the league. And, and so I think the ADs and the people that make the big decisions, they're looking at this as, you know, if Auburn can do it, we can do it. And and if it's a place like Florida, they, they expect to be at the top. So I think that starts to explain it. And of course, as you mentioned, the football drives all the money. That's only going to continue to be crazier and crazier as Texas and Oklahoma enter the fold. And we have 16 teams, you know, battling for bids. The last time we had a 16-team league was the Big East. And one year they had 11 bids. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about for our future. Like, are we going to get to that kind of level? The way that the SEC is getting all of the top coaches you could definitely foresee that being a possibility. Yeah, I do think that it's going to be so fascinating to take a look at that moving forward. So many coaches. I know that you tweeted out, Murray State at San Francisco wound up playing in the NCAA tournament and 72 hours later, both of their coaches <laughs> are now in the SEC. So that's just right. going to show 
just the turnover that we're seeing in college basketball. As we do have Rocco Miller joining me on the podcast. And you mentioned it when the Big East wound up getting 11 bids to the NCAA tournament. And we saw it in this NCAA tournament. Big Ten, once again, wound up getting a lot of bids to the NCAA tournament. And they had fewer teams in the Elite Eight than the Metro Atlantic. Now, I think obviously you should be taking that and saying, oh, the Metro Atlantic had a better year than the Big Ten. But certainly it is a case which... I do think that there might be a little bit of tweaking as to how we wind up evaluating these teams moving forward. You're a guy that you do a tremendous job on the bracketology front. What are your overall thoughts about what we've seen here in March? Because in ACC that many people thought should have been a one-bid league. Now, that was obviously a little bit extreme, but many people were thinking maybe two, maybe three bids for the ACC. They wind up getting three teams in the Elite Eight. They've got two teams in the Final Four, and Second straight year, Big Ten gets a lot of bids. Second straight year, Big Ten disappoints. Yeah, I mean, overall, I think the theme this year, I thought about this a lot today, is Duke's a young team and extremely talented, you know, full of blue chips. And I got to see them here in San Francisco this week up close. And I saw them earlier this year at Ohio State. So being around them a lot now, I've seen the growth. When I saw them lose to Ohio State this year, they didn't have anybody that wanted to step up and take a shot late in a close game. That's how they lost to Miami during the regular season. That's how they ultimately gave Virginia an extra possession to get beat on the buzzer beater against Virginia. So I had doubts about Duke coming into the tournament, but during this tournament, they've really played well as a group. Coach K, of course, gets all the attention, but you watch them, just all the shot makers they have. Jeremy Roach has played tremendously well. Paulo gets all the credit because he's the most gifted player and he's just a specimen at 6'10". They can play inside, outside. He plays good defense as well. Mark Williams has really exploded and gotten confident. A.J. Griffin was hitting huge threes. So Duke, kind of an exception to the rule because they had young talent that took all year to come together. But they still won a lot of games in the meantime because they were so talented. When you look at Carolina and Miami, I think they're really good examples of the new wave of college basketball with the transfer portal, where if you have a good coach in place, and the jury's out on Hubert Davis, but Hubert learned how to manage this group. A lot of it was player-led, and they figured out their rotations here You know, in the last five weeks or so, and it's been playing unbelievably well. But with Miami, it was you know, a really established coach. He had all the pieces, and he figured out how to make them all fit. And I think these transfer portal-built teams, Texas Tech was the same way, played a classic game against Duke and ended up falling short. But if you build a team within a year, naturally, you're going to hit your bumps in the road the first couple months of the year. But as you get into March... And as this becomes more common, I think they're going to be the teams you need to watch out for as you're doing your forecasting for who you pick in the bracket or who you wager on, you know, all the things you're into, Greg. But that was, to me, like a huge theme for those three particular teams. I think in the Big Ten, you know, some of it's circumstantial. The NCAA tournament is always matchups based. And I do think in the Big Ten in general, they didn't have as many transfer portal guys. You know, Indiana was a team where they got everybody to come back. Purdue, they don't have any real transfers that play. So it's different. Like they, they, they were a team that had been together played together. So you would think going in, they would have a little bit of an edge, but these other teams caught up to them and they all ended up getting knocked off. Doesn't mean it would happen every time if we replayed the tournament, but some of those matchups, they had tough breaks and, and the league as a whole didn't play particularly particularly well. Yeah, when you wind up drawing a 15 seed in the Elite Eight, that is a pretty charmed run for North Carolina. But I mean, man, right. the job that Hubert Davis has done in his first year, a team that about five weeks ago, they wound up losing the pit. I think that the future is very bright for him. And I just take a look at this Duke-North Carolina game as we do have Rocco Miller joining me on the podcast. 
First time that we've ever seen Duke and North Carolina match up in the NCAA tournament. No less, it's in a Final Four in the first season under Hubert Davis. No shortage of headlines here. And boy, oh boy, I'm sure that the NCAA is going to be very happy about the ratings for this Final Four with the way that things wound up shaking out with it being Kansas taking out Villanova and then obviously this Duke versus North Carolina game. But I'm just so intrigued as to what we're going to get in this matchup because last time these two teams wound up playing, it was the final ride for Coach K over there at Cameron Indoor Stadium. And as insane as it is to say, I feel like there might actually be a little bit less pressure on Duke in this game rather than there was that night in Cameron Indoor. I think that it's going to be a relatively tight game. This is a North Carolina team that over the last five weeks, they've been having one of the biggest improvements, in my opinion, of any team I've seen in quite a long time in college basketball. I think ultimately Duke gets the job done in a close one, but I think that there is just so much in this game, and I think that you could take a look at it one of 50 ways, including the pressure aspect that I want to pointing out in that it might actually be less in this game for Duke than it was a few weeks ago. We shall see. I think it's a tremendous matchup based on how hot both teams are, and Duke does have bulletin board material, so let's not forget that North Carolina was like the only team that Duke played on the road and they didn't honor Coach K. That was by design, their rivals, they didn't give him a gift. That kind of ruffled some feathers early on in the year. And then North Carolina celebrated on the, on Duke's court. Duke fans were really upset about that as well. So, of course, they split the season series, but in both games, North Carolina, from Duke's point of view, get bulletin board material. It's ruffled feathers in the, in the Duke community. I spent time with, you know, their staff and, you know, some of their biggest fans here this weekend. So I, I kind of got their perspective on that. From the Carolina perspective, you know, I don't know if anybody in the country's had in the last month three wins that are this big. The win at Duke, the win over Baylor, and the win over UCLA. From my perspective, I thought UCLA had really started to figure out everything that they did last year. Uh, they looked incredible in St. Mary's win. And the fact that Carolina was able to make enough shots, get everybody on the same page to pull out that UCLA win, on top of everything we saw last week with the Baylor win, this team is on fire. And so you're going to see shot makers all over the court, I think, for the common fan that just wants to see good basketball. This should be blow for blow, heavyweight fight. You got all the motivation. You got all the storylines as we discovered. So it's really hard to pick like which way to go. Of course, the nostalgia and the Coach K thing, you know, gives Duke probably a little bit of an edge when it comes to like setting a line. You know more about that than me, but but I'll say this, whoever wins this game, Greg, they're going to be potentially a little emotionally drained, potentially a little spent physically going into the Monday night championship game. So it could give the Kansas Villanova winner, a little bit of an edge. I think that that's so interesting as well. And when you speak of that game, I do like Kansas to be able to get over Villanova because Villanova, just a brutal blow. They're going to be without Justin Moore. You feel nothing but bad for the kid. But with that said, Villanova is one of the very, very few teams that has experienced with something like this. We all remember Cone Gillespie last year wound up being out for the NCAA tournament. And I would argue in Baylor's title run last season, the toughest game that they wound up having was against Villanova. They made that game as grind them out, as slow, as eyesore as humanly possible. Eyesore is not a word. I just wound up inventing that. But that's exactly what Villanova did. Jay Wright did a great job of knowing the situation, knowing what he all had at his disposal, and gave his team the best chance humanly possible to be able to win that game. I expect absolutely nothing less from him. He's won the best in all of college basketball. But I also take a look at this game as well. And the reason why I took Kansas on my bracket and the reason why I'm still feeling good about Kansas 
regardless of who wins that Duke versus North Carolina game, it's the way that Remy Martin has been able to step up. A preseason guy that many people thought was going to be an All-American, he wound up being banged up throughout much of the year. He has picked a very good time to be able to play his best basketball. I take a look at this spot, a short-handed Villanova team. I just don't think he's going to have the guns, but I know that Villanova is going to get the absolute, or I know that Jay Wright is going to get the absolute most out of Villanova humanly possible. I agree with that. I think, you know, the easy thing to say is Justin Moore's injury definitely puts Villanova on a disadvantage. Jay and the staff there, they have a, practically a week to get prepared to play without him. You know, in the NCAA tournament, more than any other time of year, you don't need as big of a bench because of the fact that the commercials are so long and the halftime is ridiculously long in all these games, especially in the Final Four. You know, they've only been going with basically a six-man rotation anyway. So I think they can get some of that figured out. Obviously, they lose something without more there. Uh, quite a bit, honestly, but Villanova has been very deliberate in all four of their wins on controlling the tempo, controlling the pace, playing the kind of game they want to play. They've barely trailed in any of the four games. And so if they can get out early and establish a little bit of an advantage with Gillespie running the show, Dylan Samuels and the crew in the front court, they still got enough there to perhaps uh, keep Kansas at arm's length. We saw, we saw Kansas struggle to first half against Miami before really exploding in the second half. We saw Kansas allow Providence to get back in the game the round before. We saw Kansas sweat it out with Creighton in the second round. So even though Kansas is a one seed, I think and feel like they're the most slept on one seed to make the Final Four that I can remember. And I think probably because Duke, North Carolina, and a little bit of Villanova are stealing their thunder. But you're right. On paper, Kansas should be the pick. But I do feel like, you know, the way Villanova plays and how good they are, you know, at this time of year, you really can't count them out. I totally agree with you there. And I do think that a lot of people poo-poo Kansas as well because of, we're going to call it what it is. They had the easiest road to the Final Four out of all the one seeds. When you wind up getting paired up with an Auburn team that wasn't playing well outside of Alabama, Wisconsin, they didn't even have to play against them. Everyone was calling Providence lucky a play against a double-digit seed in the Elite Eight. I think that that caused a lot of people to sour on this Kansas team, but make no mistake about it, they had to win those games. Here they are in the Final Four, and here we are talking to you, Rocco, about all of it. I know you're going to be a very, very busy man. You just said it. You're going to be down in New Orleans. There is a lot of work that is going to be done this week with getting set for the next year as well. I know you're paying attention to all these coaching moves. I know you're paying attention to all that these teams want to do with regards to their non-conference schedule next season and in years in the future as well as to them being able to try to get in the spot, them trying to be that next Cinderella like we've seen this season with a few teams. So let the good people at home know it's all on tap for you and how people can follow along on social media and other platforms. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, so coming right up, I'll be in uh, New Orleans Tuesday through Friday. I may stick around for the games as well, but the main purpose is that all the coaches in the country are down there for the convention. It's a great time to spend time with a lot of different staff. So I'll be meeting with coaches and assistant coaches from Pretty much every conference genuinely can help the teams that are not in Power 6 leagues for the most part. Even a little bit of Power 6 help as well with schedules. And so you'll start to see as soon as the Final Four and Championship game end, a lot of announcements on the schedule. Bracketsheer.org is where I own the website and we'll have an entire section dedicated on conference schedules. So beginning by the second week of April, you can start following along with the updates. The easy thing for this year is I would say out of most programs, especially at the top of college basketball, You've got about eight to 10 of those games are already done. And so really, it's just me going in and getting those entered. And then they'll leave a few spots open. A lot of the programs that will be good next year will leave some spots open once the transfer portal settles in. So I think that's important for people to know. The coaches are very interested to see which teams are going to be much improved, which teams are going to lose pieces before they finalize their schedule. 
And that's where I can really come in and help these programs out. So it's a lot of fun. In general, you can follow me on Twitter at RockoMiller8. I'll break a lot of different scheduling news as we go forward in the off season. I'll also be down in New Orleans doing some fun things with coaches and media folks and just keeping it rolling because college basketball never stops. College basketball never does stop. That's why this podcast rolls on 365 <laughs> days a year. I'm leap year 366 days. I'd be slacking if I didn't wind up taking care of that leap day every full every four years. And Rocco does an absolutely terrific job. And he's going to be playing a large hand and getting things set for the next upcoming college basketball season as things finally seem like they're going to be a bit more normal when it comes to non-conference play, knock on whatever and that this laptop and this microphone is sitting on. But Things are certainly looking good on that front. Rocco does such a good job of just being able to help out the game of college basketball in general, and it's always great to get his insights on this podcast. So a big thanks to Rocco for joining me right here on Coast Coast Hoops, now part of the Visa Family Podcast, and coming next, even though we don't have any NCAA tournament games for today, we've got two games out there for the College Basketball Classic, and there's money to be made on both of them. So we're going to give you guys fix and analysis on both of those games next as we hit some bank shots right here on Coast Coast Hoops, now part of the Visa Family Podcast. Las Vegas for Coast to Coast Hoops with myself, Greg Hoops Spears, and now part of the Beeson family of podcasts, and it is always great to get Rocco Miller, a.k.a. the Bracketeer, on the podcast. He does absolutely amazing work just keeping track of all things college basketball when it comes to scheduling, which that is a feat in and of itself. He does a great job with his actual bracketology as well, a guy that is just so well-rounded with regards to being able to follow the game of basketball. So we always appreciate him on the podcast. And now on the podcast, moving forward as well, we're going to be taking a look at some of the offseason news and notes. Now, got a lot of guys in which they're not going to be able to make their decisions with regards to the transfer portal until after the final four winds of Brad up do be noting that but with that said we do wind up seeing a couple moves that wind up happening in college basketball over the weekend we're going to be touching upon those before we wind up hitting some bank shots lots of movement with new mexico state i mentioned it they did wind up having a coaching hire and teddy allen it sounds like he's going to be declaring for the nba draft it's going to be unclear whether or not he is going to be staying in there or not but greg here hopefully i'm saying that correctly h-e-i-a-r He is going to be replacing Chris James over there at New Mexico State. He was actually coaching at the junior college level. He was an assistant at LSU under Will Wade, Greg Marshall at Wichita State as well. So that's going to be very fascinating because you have seen New Mexico State really take a look at a lot of these JUCO transfers. We've seen a lot of guys enter into the transfer portal as well as Rob Fennessy of Indiana, who it just felt like he had his moments at Indiana but was only able to average right around five points per contest last years. He is someone that is going to be entering into the transfer portal. One guy that wanted making a decision, Demir Bishop, someone that just could never put it together at St. Joe's. He's going to be heading to Florida Gulf Coast. I actually think that that could be a good fit. Bishop averaged like four to five points per game this season at St. Joe's. Came in with a lot of promise. So I think that that's going to be very interesting to take a look at another guy, Mardez McBride, who averaged 10 points per game at North Texas. He has entered in the transfer portal. Terry Roberts, the top scorer at Bradley. 
14 points, 4 assists, a guy that I think is going to be very coveted in the transfer portal. He's entered in. Taj Small, someone that I liked at Tarleton State, a guy that was able to give you right around 13 points for contest, began his career at Troy, a guy that's six foot six, able to stroke it from three-point range. He is on the transfer portal. We have seen a few decisions like DeAndre Golson, top scorer for UW-Milwaukee this year with 15 points, right around five rebounds per game. He's going to be heading to Missouri. We know that Dennis Gates, he is someone that wanted just taking over that job. Obviously, the Ryzen League connection is there. I think that that's going to be very beneficial for a Missouri team that we're going to call it what it is the last year or so has not necessarily been so great after the Mayawana making the 2020 NCAA tournament. The Conzo Martinera wound up having his ups and its downs to say the least. Also out there in the Ryzen League, Jalen Johnson, one of the better scorers for UIC, Illinois, Chicago is now out there. Jesse Zarzula, who averaged 15 points per game for Coppin State. He is on the transfer portal and Samuel Williamson, just one of the biggest Buster Roonies I've ever seen in college basketball. Had all the potential in the world that Louisville could never put it together. He and many others from the Louisville program have now decided to enter into the transfer portal. Victor Bailey Jr., who began his career at Oregon, had a lot of promise, just could never take off. He is on the transfer portal. TJ Moss, someone who began his career at South Carolina, really didn't get a lot of run at McNeese State, only right around 9 to 10 points per contest. You'd think going from the SEC down to a lesser conference like that, you'd be able to tear it up. He is now in the transfer portal along with Wildens Levique, who was really one of the top rebounders for South Carolina with right around five boards per game. So we're going to be taking a look at so much of that during the offseason on this podcast as well. And we're going to be turning it forward a little bit more with regards to a lot of these interviews as well. Once these guys do wind up making their decisions and once we wind up getting some rambunctious guys in the transfer portal as well, because you just take a look at the teams that are remaining out there in the NCAA tournament. For instance, Remy Martin, he wanted going from Arizona State to Kansas. That was a big one. You've got a lot of guys that are in the NBA draft. If they wind up deciding to not stay in the NBA draft, they oftentimes wind up going into the transfer portal. Something I was talking about in the offseason was whether or not Kofi Coburn was actually going to be returning to Illinois or not because if he would have entered into the transfer portal, boy oh boy! That would have been a big boom for someone. So we're going to be taking a look at a lot of that and so much more. And I'm going to go into more detail than I wind up doing today. We still have actual games that we're going to be able to break down. So I kept this one a little bit more short, but those are the sorts of the things that you're going to be able to expect on this podcast come the offseason, along with great guests like our good friend over there, the Bracketeer, Rocco Miller. So big thanks to him. Now let's take a look at the two games that we got on the betting board for this College Basketball Monday. Give you a side in total on both of them as we hit some bank shots. Most financial establishments close at a certain time, but not here. It is time for a side in total on every game on today's betting board bank shots. As per usual, any changes that are made to these plays will be listed up on my Twitter feed at GNR underscore one with the Basketball Classic. These are going to be actual true home games. We're going to be doing NIT games tomorrow. Those games are going to be out there at the most famous arena, Madison Square Garden. But today, we've got a pair of host teams. As we start with 887-888 on the betting board, South Alabama is going to be taking on Coastal Carolina. Coastal Carolina, anywhere between a 2.5 and a 3-point underdog in your turn on this game. Going to be getting it anywhere between a 137.5 and a 138. And this is a South Alabama. Alabama team has relatively banged up. J.J. Chandler was already out of the fold for this team, a guy that has really been one of the top scorers for South Alabama this season, came in from Texas A&M, has been able to chip in there right around 15 points, a little bit over 2.5 assists, shooting 35% from 3-point range, and then in the last contest that this team wanted playing, they were able to get the job done against USC Upstate without him, but Charles Manning, after about 8 or so minutes, he wound up being banged up. 
could not wind up returning to the game. He wound up suffering an ankle injury, and he looked to be in a lot of pain, and at this point, it's a case in which I don't think that we're going to be seeing him out there for this game as well. It is still a little bit of a jury's out situation, but I'm not thinking that we're going to be able to see him winding up being able to play in this one. And by all reports, he was in a walking boot in that game as well. That was less than a week ago. Manning, 15.5 points, 3.5 assists, 1.3 seals per contest. So it's going to be a win from within style for South Alabama, a team that is in the top 75 with regards points allowed on a per-possession basis. So that is going to be very beneficial for them. Javon Franklin is someone that winds up coming in from Auburn. 12 points, 7.5 rebounds per game. So he's able to do a solid job there. And when you take a look at Coastal Carolina, this is not a team that's going to be pushing the pace by any means. Coastal Carolina right around 20th with regards to possessions per game. South Alabama more around 250th. So you really do have a pair of teams that they're not necessarily going to be pumping up the tempo in this game. When you take a look at Coastal Carolina in terms of points allowed on a per possession basis, they've been relatively solid as well. 52nd in the country. They're allowing 82.7 points per 100 possessions in their last three games. So they've been able to do a good job here in the basketball classic. But South Alabama, they do have a good home court advantage. A team that's allowing 10.9 points fewer per 100 possessions at home rather than in a road and neutral court environment as well. So I do think that that is going to be able to help out the team. And with Coastal Carolina, the big bugaboo that the team really does have is they have a tough time taking care of the ball. Abrim Adiba is able to give you five assists per contest. Has been a solid scorer for the team, but he's a guy that turns it over a little bit too much. Coastal Carolina 302nd in the country with regards to turnovers on a per-possession basis in a road and neutral court environment. That's more like 20.7% of their possessions do wind up ending in a turnover for South Alabama. They are going to be down a couple of guards, but with that said, this is a team that they're more on 240th in the country in this category, and when it comes to what you're going to be able to get out of South Alabama, the big thing for them is that they now have Tyrell Jones back in fold, and he's been able to give the team 13-plus points each out of the last three contests. You do take a look at the turnovers, a combined 10 in the last three games, but he's also had 13 assists in that time span as well. A guy that at home is shooting 44% from three, and he wound up missing about half the season, so even though you are down Manning and Chandler, you do have a guy that you haven't had for much of the season. K.O. Gonsalves has some good versatility. 7.5 points, 4 boards. She's 36% from 3-point range with Coastal Carolina. I will say they probably have the most dominant big man in this game. Isam Mustafa, 13.5 points, 9.5 boards. Is able to give you a little bit over a block per contest. Rudy Williams, Vince Cole. These two guys combined to be able to shoot about 42% from 3-point range. They give you right around 15 points per contest. A piece as they combine for about 30 points. So they've been able to do a relatively solid job there. And then I think that the X-Factor for this team, Wilfred Likely, a guy that has been able to do some solid work with regards to this team. A guy that's able to give you five and a half boards, six and a half points per game. Tries to shoot three, shoots them at about a 31-ish percent clip. So I think that, that is going to be something that you want to take a look at. But what South Alabama does a relatively solid job of is being able to get inside of the painted area as well with regards to most of their points. A lot of them don't wind up coming on three-point shots. They're 65th in the country with two-point shooting percentage. 55.5% in a home environment that's in the top 40 in all of college basketball. And then you take a look at Coastal Carolina. Even though you do have Isam Mustafa who is in the fold, this is a team in which they are a bunch in which can be a little bit liable with that regard as well. And you take a look at the three-point shooting when it comes to Coastal Carolina as well. Among your 358-1 teams, they rank 13th in all of college basketball. South Alabama, they've been able to do an okay job of being able to cut off the arc as well. 
basketball. They're right around 100th in the country, but where Coastal Carolina can really be hurt is with regards to their two-point shooting defense, which you've got to feel like with having all the injuries when it comes to South Alabama, that is really where they're going to be wanting to attack. And with Coastal Carolina among your 358 D1 teams in terms of opponents' two-point shooting percentage, they're clocking in right around 100th. So I do think that this is something that South Alabama is going to be looking to exploit. I think that they're going to try to win from within, and I do think that they're going to be able to do so. I do want to thank South Alabama as a three-point favorite with they themselves, allowing opponents to shoot 43.8% from within the three-point arc when they are at home. That is a mark that is in the top 30 in all of college basketball, so I did wind up, despite the injuries, making South Alabama a three-point favorite, so here at 2.5, I'm going to be willing to late. I did wind up saying my total at a 136 as well. I do think that this is going to be a little bit of a lower-scoring game between a pair of teams that they're not necessarily pushing the tempo, so looking under and looking at South Alabama and wrap things up with 889, 890 on the bang board. Fresno State and Southern Utah are going to be doing battle. Southern Utah the road team is finding themselves as an eight-point underdog, and this is a DK Nation pick, as your total is anywhere between 135.5 and 136, and could be riding with Southern Utah as a DK Nation pick. This is a Southern Utah team that they have really been efficient on offense. 77 plus points in all three games here in the College Basketball Classic, despite the fact that this is a team that they have attempted 59 field goals or fewer in all three of them. This is a team that they can sometimes get a little bit loose with the ball with right around 12 turnovers per contest, but you take a look at the way that they've really been able to structure their offense. This is a team that they shoot it quite well from three-point range. And we've got a Fresno State team that they shoot 32.4% from three-point range and home 32.4% on the road. That's right around 240th in all of college basketball. You do have a Fresno State team that they like to slow it down as well, which makes it hard to be able to win by these sorts of differentials because out of 358 D1 teams, 351st with regards to possessions per game. Southern Utah is a team that they like to push a tempo. They're more on the top 75 with that regard. In Southern Utah, they don't allow second chances. They allow 19.5% of missed shots to be rebounded by opponents. That is fifth in all of college basketball with regards to road defensive rebound rate. Now, you do have Orlando Robinson for this Fresno State team. He is a seven-footer that's able to pop threes at a mid-30s clip. He has been nothing short of sensational for this team. He's been able to give you right in the pocket of about 17, 18 points per game. He chips in there eight to eight and a half rebounds per game. So he has been superb. But Mason Fawcett has really been able to do a nice job for Southern Utah as well. A guy that's able to give you 12 points, eight rebounds per contest. Shoots right around 33% from three-point range. Was a little bit limited in the game against Portland, but by all counts should be good to go in this one. And then you take a look at what you're able to get as well out of John Knight III. A guy that's really been able to headline this offense. 14 and a half points, four boards, 4.1 assists per game. And at home shot sub-30% from three-point range. And a road in neutral court environment is shooting 36.5% from three and has really been able to go off 12 plus points in each of the last five contests for this team. He has been able to give you a combined 14 assists in the last three games so liability with him. Four plus turnovers in each of the last four games and throughout the College Basketball Classic they've been without Tavion Jones but you've noticed that Jason Spurgeon has been able to take over a little bit more for this team. Six foot eleven combo gentleman that's able to give you a little bit over eight points. He chips in their five and a half boards and has been able to shoot it well from three point range. Overall for the season guy that shoots just below 42% from three-point range. Meanwhile, you've got Anthony Holland, Isaiah Hill. These two guys combined for 20 points per contest for Fresno State. Holland is able to shoot 43% from three. Hill more around 35.5% from three. Fresno State 11.3 turnovers per game. In comparison to their tempo, it's not necessarily as great as it sounds, but still relatively solid. But this is a team that they don't necessarily get a ton of rebounding outside of Holland and Orlando Robinson. Nobody else on the scene gives you more than really 4.6 rebounds per game. So I do think that Southern Utah is going to be able to do a relatively solid job in that department. And then Nick Fleming, a guy 
guy that has rarely played for Southern Utah this season. 2.7 points per contest. He has been able to step up with a combined 28 points in the three games that this team has played in the College Basketball Classic. Eight assists, a five turnovers. So he has really been able to do a solid job of being able to give this team a little bit of a boost. And for Fresno State, they come in playing some of their worst defense of the season. 67 plus points surrendered in four out of their last five games. Meanwhile, it's a Southern Utah team that they have been able to give up 70 points or fewer in three out of their last five. Meanwhile, they've scored at least 77 points in four of those contests as well. I do like the recent form of Southern Utah. The DK Nation pick is going to be taking them with the points. I do think the things are going to be slowed down with the way that Fresno State just winds up running their offense in general. Set this total at a 134. So I'm looking under and the DK Nation pick going to be taking the points with Southern Utah as I feel like they should be more of a six-point underdog and right now finding them at eight. And that will wrap things up for the Monday edition of Coast to Coast Soups, now part of the Beeson family of podcasts. A big thank you once again to Rocco Miller for joining me in the last segment. If you like what you're hearing from this fine podcast, Coast to Coast Soups, you're able to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and tune in. If you've got a question, comment, segment, idea, what have you for this podcast, you have one or two ways we'll fire those in. First one is my Twitter timeline at GUnit underscore 81. Keep in mind, letters M. They mean does not matter. So as per usual, please just send these into the timeline. And the other way is find an Apple Podcast review. If you rate this podcast five stars, it is very much appreciated. And then from there, you're able to find whatever you'd like to hear on this podcast. Find that five star review coming at you guys every single day throughout the college basketball season. And that means I'll be coming at you guys once again tomorrow. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be right back.